This is Resolutions, a podcast from the American Bar Association Dispute Resolution Section. I'm one of your co-hosts, Larry Schooler. I'm Director of Consensus Building and Community Engagement for the consulting firm CDNP. We continue to hope that you, your families, and your colleagues are safe and healthy during this extraordinary time, and thanks for spending some of it with us. Before we get on to our next episode, we want to let you know that the conference we were scheduled to host this week in New Orleans will migrate online during the week of May 18th. You can find out more and register at the ABA Dispute Resolution section website, and we hope you'll join us. Today, we're pleased to bring you a conversation with attorney, mediator, and investigator Angela Reddick-Wright. She spent the first part of her career primarily in litigation before pivoting to dispute resolution. With a focus on employment and labor law cases, Title IX sexual assault, hazing, and bullying. In a wide-ranging conversation, we spoke about her unique niche within dispute resolution and how broader movements like Me Too have impacted her work. Well, Angela Reddick-Wright, welcome to Resolutions. We really appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I was trying to think of a way to succinctly describe kind of some of your your specialty, and it it seems to fit into sort of a broad category of um, treatment or poor treatment of people within some sort of organization, whether it be their workplace, whether it be a school setting, um, you know, and so on. And I guess I'm just wondering about what dispute resolution even looks like in some of those contexts, because it strikes me that, you know, when a lot of us think about more commonplace forms of mediation and arbitration, we, we think of, you know, certain workplace issues, but, you know, by and large, those seem to get settled in, in other kinds of ways. And so I'm curious mm-hmm. just about some of what uh, this looks like in a, in a substantive way when you mediate and arbitrate on these kinds of matters. In the employment law, so I specialize in employment law cases and in the, uh, in this arena, um, what most of the cases I work on are, you know, we get either pre-litigation or in the middle of litigation. So before a lawsuit is filed, um, it's very common in California that the plaintiff's counsel and the defense counsel will say to one another, um, like, hey, before we proceed and go full force on um, litigating this case, why don't we see if we can get into, get it into early mediation? So I may get a call in that instance where they're trying to resolve it before they you know, invest a lot in the case. Um, and that's an interesting time because nothing's been done in the case. So really you're just basing your ability to settle the case on what we know at the time without the benefit of discovery and depositions, et cetera. The other instance where I'll litigate a case is actually during litigation. And sometimes it's early in the litigation, uh, which would be similar to a pre-litigation case where you have very limited information. The case has been filed, but there hasn't been any discovery. But again, the parties are in some courts, they might um, order the parties to early litigation, I mean, early mediation. Um, so I'll litigate a case, I mediate a case then. And then the other instance would be during litigation still, um, but much further. Maybe they're about to follow summary judgment motion, are about to go to trial, and before you know they go full force in this kind of final stage of the case, they want to see if they can get it mediated. Or again, a court might order them to, to mediation. So those are kind of, that's the bulk of the work I do, the litigated case. I think the other thing that distinguishes me from the average um, 
employment lawyer is that I've also had the more human resources hat and I've been on the operations side of an organization in addition to my traditional law practice. And so I've been on the ground. I was like um, chief HR officer, general counsel, in-house counsel for a top nonprofit in Los Angeles. And I, um, you know, as a result of that, I was on the inside helping shape policy, helping shape programs, et cetera, for the employees at that particular organization. So I often, and I also served on their uh, community college board here in Los Angeles, it's the LA Community College District, which has nine colleges in the district. So I tend to get called when organizations, whether they be colleges or just, you know, nonprofit employers or private sector employers, where they're just having issues with employees um, that can't get along and they want to bring um, someone from the outside as a neutral, it's still a mediation hat, but I would call it more of a facilitation hat where I go in and I literally, you know, bring everyone together around the conference table and say, what's going on here? What's at the root of the problem? How can we get past this? So I do a lot of facilitation work and I love that because sort of my model for what I do in, in a, is um, helping employers and employees create great and healthy workplaces. And so that works specifically, not that the litigation work doesn't, but the work of going in-house, sitting down, just solving day-to-day, problems between folks, um, I love it because you get to get in even before lawsuits are contemplated, complaints are contemplated, and just help people get along well. And so that's a, that's something a little bit different that I, I do and um, that I love as well. Your career, both as a litigator and as a neutral, has involved a lot of work with you know uh, assault, harassment, hazing, uh, various forms of just mistreatment. Um, I'm, I'm very interested to know over the long period of time that you've been involved in these kinds of cases and now as a neutral, what kinds of trends you might be seeing, particularly in light of what, what many have called the Me Too movement or you know, the, the high profile trials in courts or in courts of public opinion of, of well-known figures around uh, sexual misconduct. What have you seen from a dispute resolution perspective uh, change over time uh, as it relates to this this realm of, of uh, conflict? Right. Well, um, so I have been on the front lines of the, the Me Too movement. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm proud of, I had a chance to work with the um, Screen Actors Guild, also known as SAC-AFTRA. Um, you know, this, the, the height of this movement is sort of centered in Hollywood in terms of the energy that's been put around it. It existed long before Hollywood, long before Bill O'Reilly, Harvey Weinstein, and others, but her speed and his overall advocacy within the community kind of gave energy to it. And that's when Hollywood directors, actors, et cetera, stepped up and helped to form Time's Up. So as a result of that, organizations like SAG-AFTRA, who represents actors and actresses, um, decided to, to really focus on enhancing their policies and their procedures for their members to be able to report um, claims of sexual assault and harassment. And so I was um, able to, I can't take credit for it, but I was able to 
work on a team um, that was a part of helping to revamp those policies and practices. And so I've been on the inside of the movement from, from that place, but also um, in my investigations practice, I saw an increase in the number of complaints that were being filed um, because now what happened is people felt more empowered to come forward. So if you can imagine within the workplace that more people, um, and it, what, what the other great thing that's happened is many employers focused on um, took a second look at their policies and their practices and make sure that their policies, um, you know, created an environment where people felt comfortable coming forward. So I also was able to do a lot of help up many employers do policy enhancements and training around uh, preventing sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, but on the investigation side, that meant that many more complaints were filed. So this last few years, I've done numerous um, sexual harassment and sexual assault investigations, whether it be in the private sector, um, public sector, and then also in the school environment. I do what's called Title IX investigations. So schools that receive federal funding, they are obligated to comply with um, Title IX. And Title IX uh, states very much like the anti-discrimination, federal discrimination and harassment laws say that you know, if you work within a Title IX school, that you should be free from harassment, discrimination, et cetera. And that applies to students, to faculty, administrators. So I've also done overlapping Title IX investigations. I'm really curious to know what you think about the application of different forms of dispute resolution in different scenarios. I mean, obviously in our world, we you know, sometimes think about a spectrum ranging from, you know, just a face-to-face -face between two parties to negotiation with maybe some advocates to mediation to arbitration to adjudication, for example. Um, and I, I guess I'm really curious, you know, when is it, when does it make the most sense to you, given all of your experience, for someone who feels they've been a victim of bullying, hazing, sexual harassment, some sort of mistreatment, to, to pursue each of those or, or when should they, you know, go straight to the investigative and, and adjudicatory um, angle as opposed to trying to pursue it um, through, through one of these other means? Most of the cases I see, either, even as a mediator, is after when a complaint is being threatened, a, you know, a civil filing is being threatened, threatened or has actually been filed. But I do think these cases are ripe for mediation even before a lawsuit is filed, especially in situations where individuals want confidentiality. Like they feel that they've been wronged, but they don't want it to be public um, for whatever reasons. Maybe they just don't want that focus on their lives or they don't want to impact their families or just maybe don't have the personal our emotional wherewithal to go through, you know, hard for, you know, litigation or complaint process. Um, so I think in those instances, pre-mediation is definitely um, a viable option because it's confidential, obviously, and it's voluntary. And most likely you're going to get a mediator um, who has the ability to be sensitive and to you know, bring a level of sensitivity to that situation. Um, of course, after a complaint has been filed or is starting to be filed, um, 
mediation is, I, I'm a believer that mediation is always appropriate. There's never a time that it's not appropriate, even in the most high profile of cases and cases where there's a lot at stake. Um, because no, we all know that those of us that do this, we know that even if you go forward and you win a case or, you know, nobody wins because something has been lost, not just, you know, you know on the employer side, you know, they're paying, but, you know, a lot of resources have been expended on their side. Maybe the impact throughout the environment, their employment environment, uh, it's had a great impact on other employees and weight on other employees. Um, and then, of course, for the victim, um, it's, you know, substantial emotional toll, um, even if you get to the end and you win. And so oftentimes, you can get a great settlement through the mediation process, um, almost as good and perhaps better than what you would get in court because when you're going to court, you, we're always rolling the dice. Nothing's guaranteed, even in the best of cases. Um, and so if you can get a, the same or a similar result through the mediation process, it's my belief that mediation is always appropriate. And, and I guess given, you know, as I said before, given some of the higher profile uh, prosecutions, not just litigations, mm -hmm. but prosecutions of some of these um, cases. You know, I can just, I can, I can hear someone listening to this saying, you know, gosh, there's such a power in someone being sort of held publicly accountable uh, and potentially being, you know, punitively uh, treated as compared to being held accountable in a private setting uh, and you know, the settlement involving primarily uh, financial terms, maybe some sort of verbal apology. And so mm -hmm. I, I guess I just wonder where you come down on that, given the fact that there certainly have been and will be um, more prosecutions in this space or more sort of incidents of public accountability, um, how, how you come down on that. Yeah, um, I understand. I understand um, lawyers and their, their clients who opt to go that route. Um, but again, I'm an advocate for dispute resolution. So I'm always going to um, believe that um, even in those instances where, you know, counsel feels that there, a message needs to be sent, that, you know, a message can be sent and you still have the opportunity to resolve it privately through mediation. And in California, California has been um, significant and on that very question, in that this past January, um, a couple of new laws took effect that basically, or over the last year or two, I can't remember all the timing of the different new laws, but um, California's passed a law that state that you can't have um, non-disclosure agreements and settlement agreements. So what that means is in the past, you would enter, you go to mediation, enter a settlement, and say in exchange for whatever monies are going to be paid, you can't go out and talk about this um, to the plaintiff. Um, but now um, they can't require that our confidentiality in settlement agreements. So it's very possible that you can settle a case and still go out and make a public statement about it. But even in mediation, in my mediations, the parties are going to negotiate what that looks like and try to, you know, because you still, if there's going to be a settlement, there has to be incentive to the employer to settle that this is going to bring closure, you know, for both sides. 
So, but it's not where it was before where a plaintiff literally could not talk about a case at all. The only person they could talk about it to would be their lawyer and their accountant. Um, so there is some leeway now, and it'll be interesting to see if other states um, move in that direction where, um, you know, the, there are limits on confidentiality and non-disclosure. And so I think that's one of the ways to still have the benefit of mediation and dispute resolution, but also create a situation where the plaintiffs feel empowered to, to make the uh, statements that they feel are appropriate. I just want to touch for a second on the schoolwork uh, with bullying and, and perhaps with hazing. You know, I'm, I'm a student of restorative justice and I know that there have been a lot of efforts to position both teachers and students to play a role in um, resolving some of these kinds of, of conflict, some of these forms of conflict. So I guess there would be a twofold question there. I mean, one, you know, where do you see the differentiation between an outside neutral like yourself and uh, members of that community um, helping to facilitate resolution? And then two, you know, how, if at all, do you think you adapt your style and methods to uh, a much younger person uh, experiencing bullying uh, or hazing as compared to an adult? Right. So um, I'm a big fan of restorative justice also. And um, we, you know, even though there are a lot of mediators and dispute resolution professionals that do this for a living, um, there's no way that we could ever touch every kid, every parent, every, you know, person that finds themselves um, in a situation that needs facilitation or, or some type of resolution. So I think um, helping to, um, helping kids in particular to understand um, solving problems and being accountable to, through, you know, restorative justice, being accountable to situations that they are part of creating, I think is very powerful. Um, one of the great um, joys of my life is I, I serve on the board of and just was the, the immediate past president of the Southern California Mediation Association. And we're a professional organization that helps to support um, and provide training and resources to um, professional mediators. But we helped to start a nonprofit called um, Kids Managing Conflict. And they um, promote and, and do training on peer mediation in the schools. And it's very, it's very much centered around a peer mediation model as well as a restorative justice model. And um, they do great work. And every year they have a conference where we get to see um, some of the work that the students have been doing in terms of solving their own problems and helping their peers solve problems. And it's just powerful. And I think it only helps to create an environment so that as those individuals get older, they understand the power of um, dispute resolution, solving problems, because there's no way any of us would ever be able to touch every single situation out there. So the more people we can empower, and I think everybody's learned that if you want any hope for any of these principles surviving in the future, that we have to start with the kids. And so um, I join you in being very passionate about that. Um, in the work, so some cases aren't, don't resolve at that level um, and aren't appropriate for restorative justice or what have you. They're literally um, kids and teens that 
may have been assaulted or bullied or hazed. Uh, the hazing cases I do primarily are at the college level with fraternities and sororities. Um, but at the, the K through 12 level, um, I do do a lot of work with sexual assault cases um, involving kids and teens and bullying cases. And my approach there, I mean, I've, I pride myself in being someone who can connect to um, victims as well as, you know, employers or administrators, et cetera, on the defense side. Um, but in those situations, in fact, I just did a case where the kid was, he's like 12 years old now, but at the time of the, no, he's 14 years old now, but at the time of the bullying, he was like 10, 11 years old. Um, and he spoke English, but his parents did not. And of course his parents were there with him at the mediation. Um, so in that instance, I had to not just connect with him, but also connect with his parents because his parents are gonna advise him and they need to feel comfortable that whatever the outcome is, that it's the right outcome for, for their child. And so, um, and on top of that, it was late. We had a translator there so that the parents could fully understand. So on that particular day, I spent a lot of time with um, uh, caucusing with, with that group because I had to, for, I first wanted to just hear from the student himself. What happened? How are you feeling now all these years later? How has it impacted you? This person also was um, um, slightly autistic as well. So there was that added layer of really just getting him to feel comfortable speaking with me. And then, you know, spending equal amount of time with his parents. How has this impacted your lives? Tell me more about what you saw as a result of what happened to your son. And, and slowing down the process so that we could involve the translator as well. So I think in those instances, just being willing to take the time, allow those folks to tell their stories, to show that you, you know, you empathize with them and that you, you know, that you're there to try to help them to move on with their lives. And then when I go into the defense room, um, you know, really, you know, allowing the defense to share their legal position for sure, because, you know, in, in this instance, there wasn't a dispute that something happened. It was the, the dispute was around uh, the value of what happened from a, a, a straight legal perspective. So, you know, um, being sensitive in that room too, that, you know, they have a case to defend, um, they want to settle it, but they need to be able to settle it in a realm that, that makes sense for them from, you know, based on a legal perspective. And also getting them to be sensitive to um, the impact that this has had on, on the family. Um, so demonstrating sympathy, empathy for, in both rooms and helping um, both sides to see um, each other's perspective and using that to, to try to get to, to a resolution. Because if I go in the defense room and I'm like, well, I don't care anything about how you see this case, I'm not gonna get it settled. So there's no value in beating the defense over the head as much as it is saying, hey, let's have we had maybe think about the case from this perspective, or maybe think about um, 
you know, if you know, put yourself in their shoes and think about the impact on the entire family. So getting the, the defense to be, if they're not already empathetic to the situation, helping them to be empathetic, but also showing, and this is where my prior litigation skills come into play. Like, hey, I get it, you have a case to defend. And so of course you're gonna defend that as vigorously as you can, but let's try to find a way to, to make things whole um, as much as possible for the family sitting in the next room. Angela Reddick Wright, we really appreciate you joining us on the Resolutions Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, my pleasure. That was Angela Reddick-Wright of the Reddick Law Group, based in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Resolutions from the American Bar Association Dispute Resolution Section. I'm Larry Schooler.